and g'day to people over in the halls or at home. That's a crazy chapter we're looking at tonight, so uh, let's pray for God's help as we look at it. Heavenly Father, you tell us that all Scripture is breathed by you and is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for rebuking us, for training us in righteousness, and we pray that that's what this chapter of Revelation might do for us tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you hear the number 666, what do you think of? Uh, for me, growing up, at the time I did, it's horror movies where, that I shouldn't have watched, that sort of scarred me for life, where people have that number carved into their forehead as they come out to kill people and all that sort of thing. Uh, for you, it might be heavy metal music. Iron Maiden had a song, The Number of the Beast. Uh, there was a guy at our 4.30 service who was going to wear the T-shirt with it today, but he decided against it. Uh, so what do you think of when you hear the number 666? It might be new for tonight, might be the first time you've heard the number 666. I want to ask you, if you're looking to buy a car, when you went to go to the car, you saw that its number plate was SAT666, would you buy it? I hope. Well, what about if you're looking to buy a house and you went and you, as you went to look at the house, you saw, no, 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 it's at 666 Forest Road, would you buy the house? Now, I hope most of us would just have a laugh and say, why not? Uh, you might then get the 666 number plate changed on the car, but lots of people wouldn't. Lots of people wouldn't because 666 is the devil's number, the number of the beast. And so people think it has an evil power. It'll bring you bad luck if you live at number 666 or if you've got 666 on your car. And that all comes from this chapter of the Bible, Revelation 13. Look at verse 18 where it says, the one who has understanding must calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Back in 1985, uh, the Australian government decided that they would get everyone in Australia to have a national identity card. It was called the Australia card. Uh, and there was a not insignificant number of people in Australia at that time who said, we must not have this card because it is a fulfilment of Revelation chapter 13. And look at me at verse 16, because they said, The beast requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. And so I remember, I lived in Brisbane at the time, so we were a bit more likely up there, but you know, I remember being handed a flyer at the bus stop, because you didn't have the internet back then to spread these ideas, and there was uh, on that said, This proposed card, if you look closely, there is a hologram on it, and you can see the image of the beast. And we must not have this card. And inside the image of the beast is 666, all intertwined. Amazingly, the government decided they'd abandoned that idea once and for all in 987. I don't think it had anything to do with the person who handed me that flyer in Brisbane. But Revelation 13 is an intriguing chapter. And it's used by lots of people to sort of support all sorts of conspiracy theories. And I'm going to give a prize to the person who can find the 5G network in Revelation 13 this week in your gospel team. I'm sure someone will. But is that the purpose of this chapter? Uh, to make us be on the lookout for hidden codes and to make us be on the lookout for conspiracy theories and all that sort of thing? I hope by now, after a sort of a term and a half in our studies in the book of Revelation, I hope you know the answer to that question is no. That's not the purpose of Revelation 13. But that doesn't mean that this chapter is still not warning us about very real and very present dangers, because that is what it's doing. So let's get into it. Now, if Revelation 12 last week was like a fantasy novel. That was sort of book one, if you like, the, the story of the dragon, the woman and the baby. 
Well, Revelation chapter 13, this week is the sequel, and so I've called it The Dragon Strikes Back for people who prefer that type of movie. So, in episode one, last week, this incredibly vivid picture of the devil. It was painted as a fiery red dragon, and the story was he is opposing Jesus, first of all, and then opposing the church after that. So you remember what happened? He tried to stop Jesus, but he was defeated. And when Jesus died to pay the price for our sin, he was taking away the power that the devil had to accuse us. The devil can no longer say to you, God will reject you because of your sin. He can't say that. You can say, no, 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 Jesus' death has washed me clean. So the devil has been defeated. But then, remember we saw last week, until Jesus returns, the devil wants to cause as much damage as he can. So he can't take away your salvation. He he can't change the fact that Jesus has died to pay the price for your sin. But he can persecute the church. And that's what he does now. So remember the image we had last week? He's like the shark that's been caught, brought out of the ocean, but now he's in the boat. He's going to die. When Jesus returns, the devil is done for, but at the moment he's thrashing around like the shark in the boat, causing as much damage as he can. And so the devil has one mission, and that is to make it as hard as possible for you to be a Christian. And so we saw last week how the devil started with the early church. Remember, he started with the the apostles. You read about in the book of Acts, so with the first Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But whatever he did, the church survived, the gospel spread. And so at the end of chapter 12, there was a really, really ominous verse. Look now, chapter 12, verse 17, it says, So the dragon was furious with the woman and left to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and have the testimony about Jesus. So that is every Christian. That's what a Christian is, someone who keeps God's commands and has the testimony about Jesus. The devil is now waging war wherever there are Christians. And it's basically saying, Satan is going to make it hard for you to follow Jesus. Which brings us to today's chapter, chapter 13. And this episode, we've got two scenes. Uh, The first is about the beast from the sea. So come with me to verses 1 to 10. So verse 1 says, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, that's crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard, His feet were like a bear's and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. The first thing you have to see here is the beast is not the devil. See, remember the dragon is the devil. The beast is the puppet of the devil. So you see, the devil is smart enough to know that he should use human means to persecute us. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis that uh, gets used in the movie, The Usual Suspects. And it says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The devil is smart enough to know that if you believe in the devil, you believe in God. So if he can convince the world there is no spiritual reality, he doesn't exist, well, actually, he's won because you won't believe there is God. You won't believe there is Jesus either. And so here, the the beast is a human king. He's a tyrant. But behind him is the devil. That's the picture. If you look at the picture the passage paints, the beast is set up to be like an alternative Jesus. That's the picture. It's like the dragon sets himself up as the alternative to God the Father, but then the beast is the alternative to God the Son. So if you look, the beast looks like he's been killed, but has risen. He's sort of like a poor man's Jesus. Do you see that? Verse 3, one of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. 
And the beast demands to be worshipped along with the dragon. You can see that in verse 4, which is just like a Christian worships the son and worships the father. And then the beast claims authority over the whole world. Look at verse 7. It says he was also given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. And you can't help but think that's exactly the same language to describe Jesus' authority in the Gospels. I could go on and on. You can look for more parallels in your gospel teams during the week. The point is the beast sets himself up as an alternative to Christ, which is why he often gets called the Antichrist, the alternative Christ. And the beast's goal is to be anti-Christ. His goal is to drag people away from following Jesus. So look at verse 3, the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. But rather than speak the truth in love like Jesus does, what does the beast do? Look at verse 5. A mouth was given to him to speak boasts and blasphemies. He is the opposite of Jesus in every way. And anyone who doesn't give in, anyone who sticks with Jesus and refuses to worship the beast, look at verse 7, says he was permitted to wage war against the saints, that's all Christians, and to conquer them. See, this beast He does what his father, the devil, wants him to do. First of all, he leads people away from Christ. And if he can't do that, he then opposes them and opposes anyone who doesn't follow Christ. Which, of course, leads to the big question, which is, who is this beast? And then, when will he do these horrible things? One view about the beast is that this is a prophecy about a future worldwide leader who will come just before the return of Christ. And that's a very, very common view. And if you go search on the internet, you'll find it everywhere. And the the idea is he will bring the worst time of persecution for Christians there has ever been. He'll make everything else look insignificant next to what happens under the beast. And that could be right. But problematically, whenever people get caught up on that idea, it distracts them from caring about preaching the gospel and that sort of thing. And they get totally focused on working out which tyrant might be the beast. And it's always the one who's causing trouble in the world at that time. So over the last hundred years, it's been Hitler. Then it was Stalin. Now it might be Putin or the Chinese Premier. It might be Donald Trump if he resurrects, politically, that is. People have said it. So now I actually think it's much, much more likely here. The beast is actually, first and foremost, the Roman Empire and Emperor of that time. And I'll explain why. You've got to remember this book is written first to Christians living in what we call Turkey today under the Roman Empire. And so the beast coming out of the water across the water was the Roman Empire coming across the sea to rule over them and oppress them. And the Emperor Nero, who was the first one to really persecute Christians, well, he famously harmed himself attempting suicide, but then came back to life. And in fact, if you look in the ancient literature, there's all sorts of resurrection myths about Nero, which might explain that reference to his fatal wound that had been healed. And then... Nero and all the other emperors after him, they started demanding that they weren't human beings anymore, that they were actually gods, just like this beast demands. So I actually think when you look at it in its context, it's pretty clear that this is talking in symbolic language about the persecution that the early church was facing from the Roman Empire. And it's using that symbolic language so as not to make it worse for them. Because you imagine if you were found with a letter that said, hey, by the way, Nero is from the devil. In that, well, what would happen to you? Well, however bad it was, it's going to be worse after the Romans find you with that. 
So I think this is explaining the satanic origins of the persecution these first Christians were facing in a way that didn't get them into more trouble. But at the same time, I think it didn't stop with the Roman Empire. And so I wonder if that's why the beast has seven heads. See, this is going to be a repeated fact of history. It's not going to end when the Roman Empire ended. At every point of history, there have been tyrants like this. It's just repeated right through time. Satan is going to continually use earthly leaders to oppress and persecute God's people. And at their worst, they wipe out the church. At their worst, they kill Christians. They forbid people to worship Jesus. At their very worst, they demand that people worship them like God's. Like the dictators you you see in some parts of the world who change the names of cities to make it after them and build statues of themselves in the middle of the cities for people to bow down to. Just look at the guy in North Korea now. Now, praise God, this isn't our situation. Praise God for the freedom we have in Australia. We joke about our governments heading in this direction, but really they are miles from this. But our situation is actually the exception over the last 2,000 years, and even in the world today in many ways. For many Christians throughout history and today, this is their reality. Governments that forbid them to worship Jesus. Governments that demand that they give their total allegiance to the dictator. That's many parts of the world. For us right now in Australia, any persecution we face is on a much smaller scale. It might be mockery, it might be our own family excluding us, sadly for some, it might be exclusion by friends... But one day, we might have to face real violence and real oppression like so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have had to face. And this chapter is meant to make us ask, what would you do then? Would you keep trusting in Jesus even if it cost you like it cost these early Christians? So God wants us to answer that question. And so scene one ends with a comfort and a challenge to us. Come with me. First of all, the comfort. I've got to remember to click the slides. There we go. So the comfort is not that God will stop persecution happening to you. Look at verse 10. He says, if anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. The point is, that may well be God's will for many Christians in our world. It was God's will for the Apostle John. He was writing this book from captivity was God's will for the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul who were murdered, crucified by Nero. It was God's will for the English reformers 400 years ago who were burnt at the stake rather than deny God's word. It's God's will, sadly, for Christians living in some Islamic countries today who were put to death for following Jesus. Now, the comfort is not bad things won't happen to you if you're a Christian. The comfort is whatever happens to you, your place in heaven is secure. Look at verse 8, and it's sort of like a hidden comfort behind a, a, another thing. We'll look at it. It says, all those who live on the earth will worship him. So it's saying, nearly everyone's going to worship this beast. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. He's saying, everyone else is going to worship the beast, but not you. Why? Because your name is written in God's book. The book of life is like the roll book of heaven. And if you love Jesus, you have this incredible comfort that God has written your name in that book before you were even born. That is the comfort. 
Whatever happens, God has a place for you in eternity. But that then leads to the challenge, which is at the end of verse 10. Come there. And it says, this demands the perseverance and faith of the saints. The challenge is, we need to keep trusting Jesus, whatever happens. The Christian life is not going to be a doddle in the park. We will face all sorts of temptations, all sorts of struggles that will challenge us, will tempt us to throw in the towel. So we need to persevere in our faith. We need to use the gifts God has given us, I talked about last week, the gifts God has given us to keep following Christ, the gift of faith, the gift of one another, of Christian fellowship, the gift of prayer, and in particular, the gift of God's word. And the point of Revelation 13 is do not give up when it gets hard. That's the challenge. Don't give up. Persevere in your faith. Which brings us to scene two. So come with me now, verses 11 to 17. Scene two, the beast from the earth. And look from verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he sounded like a dragon. I feel really sorry for the second beast. First beast got all these horns, crazy stuff. This one, two horns like a lamb. He doesn't sound very impressive, does he? It's, it's not as unimpressive as it sounds. We think of a little lamb, it's probably more like a ram, you know, like a, like a sheep, like a male sheep. But even so, the point is this beast is nowhere near as impressive as the first beast. But he has a very loud bark, like a dragon. For those who know my dog, it barked all last night. Very unimpressive to look at, very loud bark. And if this first beast is a horrible fake parody of Jesus, well, this second beast is a horrible parody of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12. It says, He exercises all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So like when Jesus ascended to his Father, he sent his Holy Spirit to work in us, to convict us of the truth and have us worship Jesus... Well, this beast wants people to worship the first beast. And so it seems that if the first beast is based on the Roman emperor, well, this one is a picture of the priests who organised the worship of the Roman emperor. The local authorities who built the statues, who demanded that people come and bend the knee. But again, just like the first beast has been seen over and over and over again through history, the same with the second. Whenever evil tyrants rise up, they co-opt religion in to help their cause. You only have to look at the rallies that Hitler had, if you've seen the footage from the Second World War, where it was like people were worshipping Hitler. He was demanding, hail Hitler. They, it was the same with communism in Russia. It's the same if you look at North Korea today. Oppressive, evil governments create state-enforced religion. It's what they do. Or basically, total allegiance to and worship of the leader. And they always then oppress true Christianity. And this second beast, he's got two powerful strategies. Look with me. The first is, he puts on an impressive show. Verse 13, it says, he also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And if you read on, it says, he even made a statue speak and demand that Christians be killed. And you just imagine the mobs being stirred up by these tricks and doing it. When you see a miracle like that and the, and the God that's doing it says kill Christians, well you go and kill Christians. 
And pagan priests were really good at magic tricks and that sort of thing. They were good at, at making gullible people believe things. But it's actually possible these miracles were real. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh's magicians did miracles with demonic power. It's just that God's miracles blew their little tricks away. So whether it was fake or whether it was real, the point is the strategy of the devil is showy and impressive, but it's Christless. That's how the devil works. Showy and impressive, but Christless religion. I want to say to you, do not be led astray by false, showy religion. The heart of a preacher's message is not Christ and his death and resurrection. If that's not the very essence of what he talks about, do not listen, no matter how amazing his party tricks. But the warning here is not actually that this religion would lure Christians away from Jesus. John wasn't concerned that they would go, oh, now I'm going to stop believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus and I'm going to follow this God who's a statue who can talk. He, he knew they wouldn't fall for that. No, the warning is this will incite people to persecute Christians. That was the warning. The Roman priests called on their followers to kill people who didn't join in, to persecute the Christians who refused to join in with the worship. That was what was happened then. And I do wonder if now the modern manifestation of this for us in the West, places like Australia and America and England, is the rise of a new secular fundamentalism. The totally intolerant demand for tolerance that is increasing in Western society, where the great sin is to stand up and say, I believe there are sins. Where the great sin is to say there are moral standards that God will hold people to. Where all things are tolerated except a Christian point of view. An Islamic one isn't tolerated either, but they don't know what to do with that because Islam's a minority, so they sort of get caught up on that one. I think that is becoming our new state-based religion and it's worse in England and it's worse in America and frankly it's worse in Victoria than it is here but we have it. People being lynched metaphorically on social media for daring to voice a contrary opinion on whatever the matter of the day is, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's transgender issues, whether it's abortion, whatever it is and this movement has all the hallmarks of bad religion. I used, to, I used to listen a lot to the musician Nick Cave. Do we all know Nick Cave, the musician? That gives you an insight into my type of music. But anyway, uh, Nick Cave is not a Christian in any way, shape or form, but he knows his Bible very well. He's not a Christian. And he, he would agree on all of those topics with the prevailing winds of our world. He came out recently and said, you are destroying our world because you're creating a fundamentalist religion without any of the good points of Christianity. Did anyone read this article that he wrote? So he said, this movement has all the hallmarks of bad religion. There are fundamentalist priests online who decide what is or isn't an acceptable point of view. And then they start to get it enshrined in law. And then there are guardians or self-appointed police who make sure no one steps out of line. And if they do, they get publicly shamed and cancelled. And Nick Cave said it has all the hallmarks of bad religion, but with no grace and no mercy and no forgiveness. That's where our world is going. It's happening right now in Victoria, by the way. I'm, I, there are so many reasons. I'm, it's not just rugby league over AFL. I am so thankful I live in New South Wales, not Victoria. Because legislation, what, did you hear about this? Went through the parliament on Friday. That now makes it illegal to say, not do anything, to say to a person that homosexual practice is wrong and that they should remain celibate rather than act on their unwanted same-sex attraction. 
It'll even make it illegal to offer to pray for someone one-on-one who is experiencing unwanted same-sex attraction. There are going to be, in the next five years, Christian ministers going to jail in Victoria. And New South Wales is only ever five or ten years behind. Does that worry you? I hope it does. And the thing is, we can fight against it, and Christians are lobbying the government, and that's good, and all those things. But the reality is, Revelation 13 told us this was going to happen. Not specifically, but it said this is the world we live in. It's only going to get harder to stand with Jesus, even here in Australia. The beast is at work here too. He's just much more subtle. Which leads us to the second trick or strategy of the beast, and that is economic persecution, because Satan is smart enough to know that when you hurt someone's money, you really hurt them. Look from verse 16. It says, And he, the beast, requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of his name. See, what it was, it seems, when you went to worship the statue of the emperor, you were given a mark. And that mark said, that person's legit. That person's one of us. But if you wouldn't go and worship the emperor, well, then you wouldn't get the mark. And no Christian could go and worship the emperor, so they couldn't get the mark. And so it was a choice. You join in the worship, get the mark on your hand or on the forehead, then you can buy food to eat. Don't join in the worship, don't get the mark, well, see how you go, finding any food. Could you imagine how hard that would be for a Christian to stay true to Jesus when your children are going hungry? Can you imagine how tempting it would be to renounce your faith and say, I'll just, I'm not actually going to change what I believe, but I'll just go worship the silly statue so I can get the mark and then my children can eat. I don't have to mean it, I'll just go and do it and get the silly mark. And that sort of economic persecution of Christians has actually gone on for 2,000 years and it still happens in the world. If you lived in Pakistan, the Christians are the poorest of the poor. The Christians can't get work, the Christians can't do anything. So how tempting is it to say, I'll say the magic words and become a Muslim if that means I get a job and I can feed my family. You see it in countries like that. And you can't, again, you can't help but think again of the way our Western secular fundamentalism is going. More and more government departments, and this week, sporting codes and businesses are requiring their employees to support their moral agendas. And at the moment, they say, hey, freedom of speech, you can hold your Christian views, just don't share them. But if you speak up, we'll cancel you, we'll boycott your product, we'll tear up your contract. I don't claim to be a prophet, but fairly soon, in the next couple of years, they won't be happy with that. The time of the same-sex marriage debates and plebiscite or whatever it was, I remember saying, it's not going to be ministers who get in trouble with this, it's going to be school teachers, and it's going to be nurses, and it's going to be people who work for Qantas, because they're the people who are going to be told, toe the party line, or you lose your job. You see, if not already, fairly soon, they'll say, you have, to affirm, you have to actively affirm that you agree or you will be excluded. The mark for us will not be an Australia card. The mark for us won't be a, a mark on your hand or a, or a barcode on your forehead. It will be a little rainbow badge 
that you are required to wear at your workplace if you want to work here. It will be a, a sticker you're required to put on your desk to say, I agree with this whatever is the agenda of the day. And if you refuse to wear it, well, I'm sorry, we can't have your sort of person in our organisation. This week in England, a court case started for a young Nigerian Christian lady who landed the lead role in a West End musical. And by all accounts, she is an absolutely lovely person. No one has anything against her. She is a wonderful human being, everyone agrees, incredibly talented actress, incredibly talented singer. Someone found a... She's a Christian though. And someone found a Facebook post she'd put up four years earlier that called on Christians to love homosexual people by respecting them, but by sharing the truth of God's word with them too. And so she was sacked. And that that, uh, case is about to go through the courts in England. We're not there yet. Well, maybe we are in Australia, but it's not far off, is it? I'm not saying this so that you become a political activist and you go out and say, we need to stop it and that sort of thing. No, the question is, are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready to persevere in your faith when it gets hard? Because at the moment, and for the last however many years in Australia, it's been really easy, comparatively, to be a Christian. It's been the prevailing view of our country. And even if people sometimes, you know, question your beliefs or that sort of thing, it's been really easy to say, I'm a Christian. Soon it will not be the case. And Revelation 13 is saying to you, are you ready for that? Are you going to persevere in your faith even when it costs you to do that? Revelation 13 is here to warn us. Make sure you are ready. And so to close, how can we persevere? That's the question. Well, the answer is in our passage in the last verse, and that is you need to be wise. So look at verse 18, our final verse. It says, here is wisdom. The one who has understanding must calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, this is where we started, and it sounds a bit crazy. Uh, And you can see why people have got fixated on looking for that number. Oh, so wisdom is finding the number 66 on an identity card. Wisdom is finding 666 in a barcode. I think they've missed the point. Most people think where the number comes from is if you use the Hebrew letters of the Emperor Nero's name and add them and use them as numbers and add them up, you come to 666. That's what most people think. But I think it's irrelevant because the point it's making, look closely, is that wisdom is seeing that these beasts are men, not God. That's what wisdom is. Do you see that there? It says, the one who has understanding must calculate the number because it is the number of a man. See, the key here is not what the number is, but that the beast is a man, not a God. See, we've seen how in Revelation, the number seven represents fullness. It's God's number, it's completeness. So 666 is sort of like someone who tries to be God but fails. And that's what the devil is and that's what the beasts are. Men pretending to be God. And so the point is, do not let these men lead you away from worshipping the one who is God. That's the point. No matter how hard these beasts make it for you, don't give up your faith. Whether they stand there with a sword, whether they stand there with your employment contract, whether it's a bit of mockery, whatever we're called on to face, don't let it make you give up your faith in Jesus. Because your eternity is at stake. And the unspoken question of this chapter is, why on earth would you ever swap the love and the forgiveness 
and the grace and the mercy of the true Holy Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why on earth would you ever swap that, give that up for what these human pretenders have to offer? As hard as it might be for this life, nothing is worth giving up the love of Christ for. It's what I keep saying uh, in this series nearly every week. The message of Revelation is actually really, really simple. Jesus wins. That's the message. And the application? So keep trusting Jesus. That's the message. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this country uh, we have been spared so much that our brothers and sisters in Christ face in other parts of the world and at other times in history. We pray for brothers and sisters who are facing severe persecution for claiming the name of Christ right now. We pray that they would persevere and keep trusting Jesus. But we pray for ourselves that we would be ready for whatever persecution comes our way. Help us not to be naive. Instead, help us to be people who are so grounded in the Scriptures, who so love the Lord Jesus, who are so committed to one another, that when persecution comes, we persevere in our faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.